can only imagine the things that they've been through and experienced. But, uh, so, as you run into him. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 tonight. <coughs> Finish up the uh, first chapter of Isaiah. to look at God's purifying judgment in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 24 is where we left off last time we were together. But before we do, um, any prayer needs, prayer concerns, prayer requests, uh, like I said, I'll be leaving early in the morning to drive across the country and <laughs> be back late next Tuesday night, so... Uh, Appreciate y'all praying for us as we travel and visit. Any others? For the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the terement trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terement whose leaves fades, and as a water, a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. And so in this passage, we see the purifying judgment of God, God's judgment that brings. Uh, cleansing and purity and we spent several weeks looking at the first uh, first chapter of Isaiah we've taken time because this chapter kind of introduces the the book and we've been looking at some themes or concepts that will be reoccurring through the book and uh, in, in this introductory message that introduces the prophecy of Isaiah so we've taken our time to go through there and uh, and so just to kind of refresh our memories uh, it, it's kind of a, the book starts out like a, a courtyard scene. The Lord calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses uh, against his people, against the charges that he is going to level against his people. It's, a, it's an indictment. And the charges against his people, God makes, makes public. He accuses them of being like rebellious children. They are ungrateful. He has nourished them. He has brought them up. He has provided for them. And then they have... Uh, rebelled against him and they had become corrupt um, they were a people that had abandoned their covenant with God and had filled the land with iniquity and they were uh, incorrigible unteachable untrainable when the Lord sent discipline upon them uh, to, to teach them the error of their ways to encourage them to turn back to him uh, they did not respond they did not respond to correction they did not respond to his discipline they persisted in their evil and wicked ways and then the prophet says you know they were also 
hypocrites. They look down on their neighbors like Sodom and Gomorrah, but in many ways the Lord says that, uh, that they were even worse. They were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they knew better. They had uh, God's revelation. They had God's covenant. They had God's law. Uh, they had been given much, and much was demanded of them, but they had fallen short, and they had sinned against more light. And, uh, and, and, and had the Lord not responded to them with mercy, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah in their total destruction. But the Lord was merciful, preserving them because of his purpose and plan to use this nation to bring the Christ into the world, to bring his Messiah. Um, he condemns them because they had focused on outward performance, outward performance of religion without the inward transformation of the heart. Uh, they did all the right things. They performed all the rituals. They did all the ceremonies. They made all the sacrifices. They celebrated all the holy days. The temple was filled with people and filled with activity and all these things going on as, uh, uh, as we saw on Monday last week of of Holy Week, the temple filled with activities, but activity does not necessarily mean godliness or goodness. Um, their, their hearts were far from God. They had all this religious activity, all this outward performance, but their hearts uh, were far from God and their hands were filled with blood. They would go to the temple, they would make all the sacrifices, and then the day after the Sabbath they would go out and, uh, and oppress their people and and do violence and seek to enrich themselves. And so the, the Lord carefully lays out the charges. He calls the heavens and the earth to bear witness against his people as he levels the charges against them, as he tells them their accusations and the things that they had done that were, were wrong. But he also then gives them an opportunity to repent. Uh, verse 15, your hands are full of blood. Verse 6, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. And so the, the charges are leveled, but then he gives a call to repentance, an opportunity to repent. Um, all is not hopeless. If they turn to him, if they wash their hands, if they stop doing evil and start doing good, they can be forgiven and restored. If they believe the Lord, they are confronted with his word, they become convicted of their sin, they believe him and they turn from their sin and turn to him in faith, they can be made clean and restored. And so uh, the charges are laid out. The call to repentance is issued. But then the prophet sings a funeral song, how the faithful city has become a harlot. And uh, the call to repentance has gone out, but the Lord knows that there will be no repentance. Repentance will not come. And so the prophet laments the terrible fall and because repentance will not come, what will come? Judgment. Yeah, he levels the charges, he calls to repent, but if there is not repent, they have not responded to his discipline in the past, they do not respond to his call to repentance, and so the result will be judgment. And uh, judgment will come. And now we see the, the verdict and the sentence pronounced. And it's a solemn declaration. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. And so you hear the, uh, the solemn nature of this. You know, the, the, the judge and, and the prophet piles names and titles for the Lord together to show the, uh, 
the importance of this pronouncement, this verdict, this judgment that is being leveled. The, the charge has been leveled and they have been found guilty and now the sentence is pronounced. Uh, and, uh, and we see the one pronouncing the judgment. And, and again, that, that first part of verse 24, we see three titles, three names for the judge. And uh, uh, therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Um, and, and what do you notice about, and we, we talk about this in the Old Testament frequently, but what do you notice about the font of the word Lord, the first use of the word Lord in verse 24? That's not in all caps. It's a normal font. You got a capital L, uh, lowercase O-R-D, which signifies what? Anybody remember? Compare it to the second use of the word Lord. Okay, so the, yeah, the, the, the all caps, the second time it's used, the Lord of hosts, you see all uppercase letters, which indicates in the original language, this was the covenant name of God. The, God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you choose to translate that. And so the first title, the word Lord, is the, is the, uh, the more generic name of, of God. The all uppercase signifies the covenant name of God. The lowercase signifies the title Lord, the sovereign, the master, the one who is in control. And so it, uh, it's... it's it's like his title is Lord and his name is Lord with the uppercase. Uh, uppercase. And so uh, the, the sovereign, the master, the one who is in control, the, 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 the judge, the master, the ruler, the sovereign, the king, the Lord. And then he gets personal, the Lord of hosts, using his personal name. He is... Lord, a Lord who is in covenant with his people, who has a covenant relationship with his people. He is the great I am. He is the God who came and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He appeared to them and, 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 and brought them to, uh, he appeared to them in the wilderness and brought them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a personal covenant with him. And, uh, and he revealed his name. The Lord, Yahweh, um, he, uh, he entered into a covenant relationship with them. He gave them his law, and, uh, uh, and there they built, according to his specifications, an ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant which symbolized his presence in their midst that went before them into battle and led them to victory after victory. And that Lord, the one who is in covenant relationship with him, is the Lord of hosts. So what's the idea that's covered in the title, the Lord of hosts, commander of armies. And so he's, he is the, the Yahweh, the commander of armies. And he was the commander of the army of Israel as they went into the promised land and he drove those nations out before them. Uh, he, he, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized his presence, his, his uh, 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 leadership of the army but also not just the earthly armies, but that title is used to describe him as the commander-in-chief of the heavenly forces, the heavenly armies as well. Uh, he, he commands the armies of the earth, 
and he commands the armies of heaven, uh, armies of angels that exist to do his will, to do his will perfectly, to execute his judgments. Uh, and so he is the, the, the commander-in-chief of all the heavenly forces and all the heavenly armies. He is the Lord of hosts. And then what's the third title that we, we get of him in that verse? The mighty one of Israel. And this may surprise you. This is unique. This is the only usage of this title in the scriptures. Um, there are, uh, uh, the, God refers to himself as the mighty one of Jacob several times. But this is uh, uh, the only use of this name in the Bible. We know that Jacob's name was changed to Israel after he wrestled with the Lord back in Genesis. Jacob became, uh, his name was changed, changed to Israel and he became the, the, uh, the father of the nation. But here the prophet uses a unique term. He is the mighty one of Israel, emphasizing uh, the nation and, uh, 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 and not using the name of Jacob, the, the, fa- the, uh, the, the, the father of the nation, but using the name of the nation itself. Um, and, and what is the mighty one of Israel going to do? In the last half of that verse. All right, yeah, I'm going to rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. And so if you're from Israel and you're hearing that, that the mighty one of Israel is going to rid himself of his adversaries and, and take vengeance on his enemies, what might you think if you were an Israelite? Yeah, yeah, we're on his side. <laughs> he is the God of Israel. He's talking about our neighbors. He's talking about our enemies. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about uh, the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the, uh, uh, these other, the Edomites, the Moabites. He's talking about somebody else because he's the mighty one of israel we're israel we're his friends we're not his enemies he's not going to take vengeance on us he's not going to rid himself of us but then what is the next phrase he says i will turn my hand against you you are in fact the enemy he is going to rid himself of all his adversaries is going to take vengeance on all his enemies and that's at first it sounds like good news to Israel the mighty one of Israel is going to get rid of his enemies he's going to take out vengeance on all his adversaries God's armies are going to move out but the next words show that Israel has become his enemy Um, the armies of the Lord are going to march against Jerusalem against the city that had been the faithful city but had become a harlot and had resisted God's discipline and resisted God's call to repentance and when he says I'm going to rid myself of my adversary uh, that, that that carries the idea of, of, of relieving yourself of a burden you know a, a something that you've been carrying a, a pack that you have been carrying it's been weighing you down his adversaries have become a weight on him and he is going to relieve himself of that burden he's going to rid himself of that weight going back to uh uh 
to verse 14, where he says, Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And so he's become weary of carrying that load and enduring their empty worship, their false uh, outward performance without the corresponding uh, heart that loved him. He had become weary of that and uh, weighing him down, and now he's going to rid himself of that burden. He's going to unload that burden from his back. He had become weary of burying his people, so he's going to cast them off, rid himself, uh, relieve himself of what had become an exhausting, wearisome burden. Um, And so uh, the prophet announces God's coming judgment. Uh, that the people, his own people, have become his adversary. They have become his enemy, and he is going to uh, take vengeance on them, uh, the nation of Israel. And so uh, the judge is the Lord, the sovereign, the king, the Lord of hosts, the personal God that is commander of the armies of Israel and the armies of the world and the armies of heaven, the mighty one of Israel is going to judge. And the judged is the nation or the city Jerusalem herself. That is the judge. And then the, the real, the real uh, center of this text is the, the purpose of God's judgment. He says in verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. Alloy. Um, and so, uh, so what's the goal of God's judgment? Refine, purge, clean. So the goal of God's judgment here is not destruction. He is not coming upon Jerusalem to destroy her. He's not coming on Israel to crush her, to wipe her out, but to purify her, to purge her. So this is a purifying judgment. Uh, God's judgment is refining. It is a painful process but it is a necessary one. Uh, The refining and purifying is necessary if God's people are going to continue to exist. And so it's painful, purging, but it is absolutely essential. God is going to bring his judgment, and the purpose of the judgment is not destruction, but purity, holiness, to purge them. And, uh, and what's the word alloy mean? What's an alloy? What? Yeah, and so, so an alloy is actually a, a combination of, of metals, right? Uh, where, where two different metals. Yeah, yeah, so the, so the, so it's a, it's a lack of purity. So the dross is uh, like when you would go to the ground and you would, build, you, would, you would take some gold out of the mine. You know, it doesn't look like this when it comes out of the mine. It looks like a rock. 
<laughs> and it's got a lot of dirt and impurities and other minerals in that. And the gold is kind of mixed in there. And so the dross is burned away to leave a pure gold. But then an alloy is when you would take a, a two metals like copper and tin and put them together and make bronze, right? Is that right? Is that right? You're a science teacher? <laughs> so, so, so two different metals come together and make a, an alloy, which is a combination of metal, which by its nature is impure. It's not pure tin. It's not pure copper. It has been mixed to make something different. And so, again, it's a picture of purity. Instead of being this mixed metal, I'm going to come and bring the fire and I'm going to separate those metals so that they're two pure ones. And remember, one of the big sins of Israel is not necessarily the failure to worship Yahweh. They were doing that in the temple. They were having the new moons. They were having the feasts. They were, they were uh, doing all the ceremonies. They were doing all those things. But what were they also doing? They were adding to, and they were adding the worship of other gods. So they had mixed those two things together, and God says, I'm going to bring a fire, and I'm going to purify that. I'm going to take away uh, that mixture, and I'm going to burn away all that's impure and leave the pure and the holy. So God's judgment is on his people, is purifying. It's not for their destruction, but for their purity. And so I'll turn my hand against you, thoroughly purge away all your dress, draws, take away your alloy. And then verse 26, I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And so here is a promise of restoration. So the, the, the judgment's going to come and it's going to be purified. Burn away all those impurities. Take away that false worship, the worship of false gods. And leave in its place the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Back, back to verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. And so with the purifying judgment, that harlot then becomes a faithful city. So God's judgment is, is purifying. And, uh, and what will he restore? Verse 26. Judges, all right. What comes to your mind when you hear the word judges? Yeah, it's the book of the Bible. And what is the theme of the book of the Bible of Judges? Anybody remember that way back when we studied through Judges a long time ago? Yeah, in those days there was no king. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see what happens when, they're, uh, when, when everybody does what they think is right. And, uh, and so we see the, the book of the Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what, what was right in their own eyes. And and the book of Judges shows the importance of human leadership. The Lord, the master, the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel is the authority, but he sometimes chooses, many times, most of the time chooses to mediate his rule through human leaders, human rulers, human judges. He institutes the state to be one of the means that he uses to exercise his sovereignty. You know, every authority 
comes from God. And God sometimes delegates his authority. He delegates his authority to human leaders, to human, to human rulers, human agents that are his ministers, that are his servants, that are put in place to exercise authority uh, and to create order. You know, where sinful people can live together without destroying one another. And the human authority is given the sword to punish evildoers and to create an environment where those who live under the law can live quiet and peaceable lives. And so God institutes government and he delegates his authority. He, he mediates his authority through human means. And so uh, here he speaks of the, of the judges. And so the theme of the book of Judges is in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And how did things go during the period of the judges? Remember the, the pattern, the cycle? All right, so, yeah, so they would sin. They would sin against God. They would worship false gods. They would mix the worship of God with the other gods. God would raise up an enemy to come and oppress them, to subjugate them, to defeat them. And they would live under that rule for a while. They'd get tired of it. They would cry out to the Lord. He would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver them. And pretty much for the life of that judge, things would go good. They would live under the authority of that judge. They would be faithful to God. When that judge died, the cycle would repeat. They would rebel against the Lord. He would raise up an enemy to oppress them. They would cry out for deliverance. God would raise up a judge. That judge would deliver them. But as we noticed when we went through Judges, every time that spiral occurred, the spiral seemed to get deeper <laughs> and farther away from God. So, so they would spiraling down, kind of like Romans 1 describes. And so every time that cycle occurred, they would get farther and farther away. And even among the Judges, things deteriorated when they got to... Uh, uh, to uh, Jephthah and Samson, uh, two judges who, uh, uh, well, you know, of course, all the judges were, were flawed, but as that spiraled, you know, Samson, uh, his, his personal faults, his flaws led to his destruction, and, uh, and he killed more of the Philistines in his death than he did in his life, uh, we're told from the book of Judges, and so... Uh, so here God says, I will restore your judges at the first. Like Moses, Joshua, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Samuel. And God promises good leadership. Good human leadership. I will restore your judges as at the first. And the counselors at the beginning. Um, with good leadership... With good human leadership, the harlot will once again become a city of righteousness and a faithful city. And, and so in this verse, we see the importance of, of human leadership. As, as goes the king, so goes the people. And you see that in uh, the judges and then in the kings. And as the, uh, the, 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 the kings in Israel, all bad. Israel followed the ways of their kings, ended up in exile. Uh, Judah had some good kings, mostly bad kings. And here uh, God is speaking of the coming exile for them. 
And so uh, part of the restoration of his people is the restoration of good, good human leaderships. Um, And so uh, uh, the, the, the promise of of good leaders and uh and you know one of the one of the issues among god's people today is a a feeling of individualism you know there there's a distrust of authority in every form we don't like the idea of submitting to to human authority we want to do what we want to do and we must never forget that god has instituted human authority uh, instituted authority among people he is the lord but he mediates his rule through human authority at every level, in the, in the family, in the state, in the church. Authority is a good thing. And human leaders, God mediates his rule through human leaders, and he institutes a structure of authority in every institution that he has ordained. And, uh, uh, and so authority is a good thing. It is a gift from God. It is essential to living and thriving in a sinful world but what is also true about every human authority every human authority is a sinner (laughs) and so we will not have perfect judges and perfect counselors as long as we live in this fallen world so every every authority is a sinner in the family in the state in the church and uh authority can be misused and abused. But God uses even wicked leaders for his purpose and for his glory. Uh, Wicked leaders can be risen up as a form of God's discipline and judgment upon his people. Uh, And one of the uh, uh, way God blesses his people is by raising up good and wise leaders, faithful leaders. Um, And so, so authority is a good thing, proper submission to authority is a good thing. Everyone given authority has authority that's been delegated by God and is God's minister, God's servant to do good. So the authorities also need to recognize their authority. They're (laughs) submitted to the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, and their, their power comes from him, and they are subject to him as well. So, uh, so God says, I will restore the judges as at first. Uh, the ones, the counselors that had the beginning, the good leadership will come and be uh, a refining, a purifying element for his people and help them in the ways of righteousness. And then verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice. Um, Zion is the mountain upon which Solomon built the temple, but Zion is now in need of redemption. She has become sinful. The worship was empty and meaningless. In fact, the worship had become a burden to the Lord, a burden that he's going to cast off. But redemption will come, but it's also important to know that redemption begins with judgment, destruction. Uh, Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her penitence with righteousness. What does it mean to be penitent? Sorry, or, or, or repentant. And so, uh, so uh, um, there is a 
worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance, but there is also godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And so there will be some that are sorry that they're being judged, and they will not repent, but then there are others who will be brought to repentance. They will be, uh, uh, they will believe the Lord, they will respond to His discipline, they will turn to the Lord in faith, and, uh, and, and they will be redeemed with righteousness. And so there will be some who turn, some who believe the Lord, some who believe God and turn from their sin, and to those there will be righteousness, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But salvation is only going to come by God's grace through faith, and those who believe the Lord and turn to him will be a remnant that will be saved. And so the judgment is purifying. Out of the judgment, there will come some that are penitent, that are repentant, that believe God, turn from their sin, and turn to God in faith, and they are saved, they are redeemed from the judgment. But there will also be those who do not respond to repentance. So at the same time that the uh, uh, Zion is redeemed and her penitence with righteousness, at the same time, there will be the destruction of transgressors and sinners. And those who forsake the Lord will be consumed. And so destruction will come to the transgressors and sinners. Those who do not believe the Lord, do not turn away, uh, turn to Him, uh, they will be consumed. And they will be made ashamed of worshiping the false gods and idols that they have worshipped. Uh, the destruction of transgressors and sinners shall be together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Verse 29, they will be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you will become embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth who leads fades in a garden that has no water. And there could be two things in view here. Uh, perhaps the, the, uh, uh, the plantings that they established to, um, to the worship of their false gods. You remember Baal was believed to be a fertility god, and so they would plant trees and gardens uh, and, and petition to Baal to make those fruitful and fertile. Uh, and so it could be a condemnation, probably is a condemnation of their false worship. Uh, these trees that they planted, these gardens that they planted in honor of Baal, and it could also be a sign of their prosperity, their fruitfulness, the, the, the garden, the, the trees. But these trees, will the leaf will fade, the water will have no garden, and then there will be uh, a burning and fire, the fire of God's judgment. And fire destroys, but fire also purifies. Fire reveals that which is dross and leaves that which is pure and that which is, is, is gold, that which is righteous and that which is holiness. And so this is a picture of God's purifying judgment. He calls the heavens and earth to bear witness against the charges that he's going to level against his people. He offers them an opportunity to repent, but they do not respond with repentance, so his judgment will come, but his judgment will be purifying. From the judgment... God will save for himself a remnant 
of the faith. And this is essential to the outworking of God's plan. Israel is the chosen nation through which God will bring the Savior into the world. And his work through Israel, even this purifying judgment, was one of the means that he used to keep his promise. He called Israel to himself. He brought them into the land. Uh, Their leaders led them astray. They went into false worship. And God disciplined them, uh, raising up uh, armies to come and oppress them, raises up judges to deliver them, bringing the kings as they wanted. And so God would send his prophets to call them to repentance. They would persist in their rebellion. And then God's purifying judgment would come. Israel would be judged for her disobedience. But a faithful remnant would be preserved through which Messiah would come. And now uh, we've got the New Testament. We know Messiah has come. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, he came into the world through Israel as an Israelite. And as the true king of the Jews, the greater son of David, the perfect judge, the wonderful counselor, even after, you know, at the end of the book of Judges, we're saying, wow, there needs to be another, another judge that comes. Gideon is not that. Deborah's not that. Othniel is not that. Ahud is not that. He was a a good judge. He delivered the people. He ruled over the people, but he was not the the savior. He's not the redeemer. We need a better judge. And then through the kings, these these kings have all fallen short. Even David, the man after God's own heart. He doesn't bring the kingdom. He doesn't bring salvation to the people. Even at the end of David, we're looking for another king. And then after the exile, there's Zerubbabel and, uh, and the prophets and the intertestamental people and we're still looking for a judge a wonderful counselor that will bring salvation and it's not until we get to the new testament that we see the righteous judge the greater son of david that lives a sinless life and dies on the cross to take the penalty of sins for all who believe we see the righteous judge treated unjustly as he dies for the sins of his people, but God raises him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. Even the greatest of the judges, like Moses and Joshua and Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Samuel, not able to save God's people. Not even the great King David was able to bring justice and righteousness. It took the sinless Son of God, the true judge, the true king, the wonderful counselor, to bring true justice and righteousness. And at the end of the purifying judgment that came after the preaching of Isaiah, the people were still looking for the judge and the king. And the king has come in Christ Jesus. And even in the New Testament, this idea of purifying judgment is is an idea that goes through even the New Testament. You remember the preaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in the the wilderness baptizing uh, Uh, giving a baptism of repentance and in Matthew chapter 3 we read that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins and so John the Baptist comes preaching a message of repentance much like Isaiah calling the people to repent and many come and participate in the baptism of repentance but, but Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And he tells them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with the water into repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And listen to this separation, verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John the Baptist speaks of God's purifying judgment, a separation. The same fire that consumes the chaff produces the pure and the, uh, and the, and the holy wheat. Um, and so this, this theme of purifying judgment is even a New Testament theme, and we see it also in uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are utterly clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for you, without me you can do nothing. But if anyone is, does, not, does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And so they're the same image. Isaiah, John the Baptist, Jesus speak of God's purifying judgment. The purpose is holiness, fruitfulness, and the fire of judgment performs a separation. Those who believe and repent and turn to God in faith, preserved, made holy, purified. But that same fire that purifies the gold destroys the dross and separates that which is impure. God's judgment is a judgment that purifies. And so Isaiah speaks of God's purifying judgment. He says to Israel, I will turn my hands against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges at the first, your counselors at the beginning, and afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful and so God's judgment purifies. And the harlot, many within her consumed, but those who remain purified, the city of righteousness through which God preserves the remnant through whom he will bring the Christ, the Savior of the world. So Isaiah speaks of God's purifying judgment. Any questions or thoughts about that concept? All right. Well, next week, we will look at Isaiah's second message. Chapter 2, verse 1, the word of Isaiah, 
the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we're verse 31, the end of one sermon, chapter 2, verse 1, the beginning of a new sermon that we will look at next week, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word, Lord, and we thank you for the purifying fire of your judgment, the purifying cutting of your pruning knife, the purifying judgment of the winnowing fork. And God, we recognize that that's painful, fire hurts, cutting hurts, but the goal is fruitfulness, purity. God, we pray that uh, you help us to persevere and endure and to be revealed to be that which is holy and pure. And we pray that you would burn away all those things that are impure, that are ugly, that are displeasing to you, that don't need to be there, that are, that are fruitless, that are si- simply sucking energy, but not bearing fruit. God, we pray that that would be cut away and that all the energy can go to producing fruit and holiness and purity. Lord, help us to endure and persevere your purifying judgment so that we might be made more holy, that we might look more like Jesus, and that we might better reflect your glory. And we're thankful for your son Jesus taking our sin to the cross, taking the penalty that we deserve. We thank you for his resurrection and for his ministry now interceding for us. And being for us the vine through whom we can draw our life and draw all that we need to be fruitful branches for your kingdom and for your glory. So help us to be fruitful branches by your grace and the power of your spirit as we abide in the vine and as we abide in your word and your words abide in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you all so much.